The art world gathers at the Javits Center this September 8th through 10th for one of the most anticipated cultural events of the fall, the Armory Show, New York's Art Fair. Enjoy priority booking. Buy your tickets today at thearmoryshow.com. Welcome to the Harper's Magazine podcast. I'm Christopher Bea, the editor of Harper's Magazine. And in this week's episode, I speak with Benjamin Hale, whose essay, Who Walks Always Beside You, appears in the August issue of the magazine. As we discuss in our conversation, this is a very long and somewhat meandering, but very powerful essay. And I would be remiss if I did not mention up front that it was published with the support of the John Templeton Foundation. It is the first in a series of long essays that the foundation will be supporting. So it's my pleasure to be here talking with Benjamin Hale, who is the author of a novel, The Evolution of Bruno Littlemore, and a story collection, The Fat Artist and Other Stories, and also a fair amount of nonfiction for Harper's Magazine and elsewhere, including your wonderful folio in the current issue, Who Walks Always Beside You? A Disappearance in Arkansas. It's one of these sort of amazing true stories that I don't want to spoil too much by simply going beat by beat through it, but maybe you can give us a brief summary of the subject of this piece. Uh, Sure. And uh, first of all, thank you very much for that uh, introduction and thank you for having me on this podcast. Uh, The uh, 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 summary of it, it's kind of funny that... uh, uh, lately, for the like six months or so that I've been working on this, uh, every time um, I uh, uh, somebody asks what I'm working on, uh, it, I try. I say, "All right, I'm trying. I'm going to try to give you the um, nutshell version." And then I wind up uh, telling a story for about an hour. But uh, the uh, about uh, twenty years ago, uh, my uh, cousin, who was a six-year-old girl at the time. Uh, was uh, on a hike with her grandparents, or my aunt and uncle, uh, and uh, she was lost on the hike, uh, and uh, she was gone for three days, and uh, it wound up becoming the biggest um, search and rescue mission in the uh, in in the Arkansas Ozarks. My, my I should have said that before. My uh, whole family is from uh, Arkansas, uh, and she was gone, lost in the woods for three days. Uh, and she was found in a really, uh, the, the story of her being found was kind of crazy in that, uh, she was found by a couple of guys who were hunters, who were local, uh, guys who lived in the area who weren't part of the official search team. They had just heard that there was a six year old girl missing in the woods and, uh, uh, went looking for her on, on their own. Uh, and they found her, brought her back and, uh, and she was, uh, uh, taken to the hospital and treated for dehydration, but there was nothing else wrong with her. And uh, and they uh, released her the next day. Her parents took her home, and uh, there was a crowd of reporters camped out on their lawn, and they decided it best to take her away for a few days. Uh, they asked her where she wanted to go, and the, her favorite thing that she'd seen in her life until that point was the uh, Gateway Arch in St. Louis, 
so they went out to St. Louis to see the arch when they were driving out to St. Louis. Uh, she started telling them about her uh, imaginary friend that she'd had when she was lost in the woods. Uh, she said that she had this imaginary friend who was four years old. Uh, she had uh, long, dark hair that she kept in pigtails, and she had uh, uh, purple pants and white sneakers, and she had a flashlight with her, and her name was Alicia. And uh, she said that this friend was with her from the moment that she knew that she was lost until the moment she was found. And that really um, spooked her parents and all the other adults. They started talking about it. And uh, a few months after that, uh, there was this guy, uh, Tim Ernst, who's a nature photographer who lived in the area at the time. And, uh, and when Haley was lost, he that guy opened up his house to uh, Haley's parents and uh, grandparents and a bunch of other people close to them and basically that guy's house became one of the main hubs of the rescue operation. And, uh, and he became a friend of the family afterward. And a few months later, he was, uh, he sent an email to my aunt Joyce, who is, uh, Haley's grandmother, who was the last person to see her before she disappeared. Uh, and, uh, and he, he wrote her and said, the other night, my wife, Pam was asking me if there were, we were talking about Haley's Alicia. And she asked me if there were any little girls who ever, uh, got lost or died in those woods. And, uh, and he said, and I, and a chill ran down through, ran down my spine when I realized, yes, yeah, actually there were, there was, there was this, uh, this crazy thing that happened about, uh, 20 years ago. 40 years ago now in uh, in the 70s where there was this cult that was uh, arrested for murdering this uh, little girl and burying her in a uh, paint bucket. Everyone always remembers that detail. Burying her in a bucket on, in the, on top of the mountain in, uh, in, a, in that area of the woods. And, uh, and he sent my uh, aunt that email and she had started doing research and uh, uncovered this really crazy story uh, that happened in 1978. There was a cult, a very small cult. It was about 12 people, and only about half of them were there when this happened, that uh, was uh, arrested in 1978. Uh, they were caught in the, on a really interesting way. The, the, uh, the game warden of Newton County was out hunting turkeys early in the morning, uh, on uh, uh, Monday, April 24th, 1978, and he came across this group of people who were camping in the woods, uh, and they seemed, you know, the uh, Ray Watkins, the sheriff's deputy at the time, who I talked to in the story, said that uh, the game warden thought they were just acting kind of funny. There was something off about them, and uh, the game warden wrote down the license plate numbers of the car they had there, and uh, got back to his car, radioed the sheriff in Newton County, asked him to run the plates. He ran them and got back to him and said, "These are these are vehicles that are uh, poss that be possibly belong to people who are wanted, uh, have an active warrant out for their arrest in Benton County uh, for child abuse." And uh, the game warden and his hunting buddy, who happened to be there with him, stayed there uh, to make sure they didn't leave. Well, the sheriff and the sheriff's deputies got there and arrested them. And, uh, and eventually they found the uh, body of a three-year-old girl who had uh, been shot eight times with a twenty-two. I, I believe the day before that and buried about th uh, three feet deep in a plastic paint bucket. And, uh, and, the, and five people were arrested. 
and of those five people, one of them was uh, the mother of the girl who was uh, murdered, and uh, the uh, and it just so happened. Well, and that that woman, Lucy, I call her in the article. She was the only hers was the only case that went to trial because the other the other people switched their pleas to um, no contest and guilty. And uh, and it just so happened that my aunt was friends with uh, this guy, Tom Keith, who was a judge then. He, he is dead now. He died a few years ago. Uh, and he was the defending attorney, one of the defending attorneys of the mother of the girl who was murdered. And uh, and she was convicted of murder and uh, given a, a, a short sentence of five years because the jury kind of somewhat understood that she was, uh, if any, was more of a victim uh, than uh, a perpetrator in the crime. But uh, Tom Keith always believed, took it to his grave, that uh, that he thought that she was as much of a victim as her daughter had been and that she shouldn't have uh, served any jail time at all. Uh, but he kept in touch with her. Uh, and, uh, and when Joyce came to him with this... Uh, uh, asking about this case, uh, he put her in touch with, uh, with Lucy and they've been, uh, kind of friends ever since then. Um, they email and call regularly. And, uh, and at the end of it, you know, uh, I, I think that Joyce sort of in a way, maybe a little bit believes that, uh, the uh, spirit or ghost or something of uh, of Lucy's daughter, who was murdered by that cult in 1978, was uh, Haley's imaginary friend. I'm not sure exactly how much she really believes that, but Lucy does believe it uh, and believes it with a you know conviction. Uh, and I think that in her case, you know, like all of these years, she's been understandably racked with guilt and that uh, this idea that uh, that Haley was guided to, uh, to the river by the spirit of her daughter that was murdered in uh, back in the 70s gives her some sort of uh, a sense of uh, closure you know she said that uh, memorably that her daughter didn't necessarily live a meaningless life if she had existed in some form in order to help Haley she said that she that Bethany had to die in order to save Haley, and Haley had to live in order to save me in some sort of way, um, which I think is an interesting emotional conclusion to the story. It is. It's a very powerful conclusion. The story of the piece, which is a, a, a very compelling story, but the the sort of aboutness of the piece, if I put it put it that way, is um, varied. But but. Certainly one of the things the piece is about is belief, um, what we believe, mm -hmm. why we believe it, what it means to believe something, you know, in the sense you speak about your aunt saying that she, you're not sure whether she does or does not believe this thing or whether she says she. Right. And of course that comes in with uh, so much of the events surrounding this cult. And so I, I want to take a step back and speak a little bit about your relationship to belief, which there was quite a bit more of in in an earlier version of this essay. But mm -hmm. to take a further step back, you and I have known each other for 
about, I think, 12 or 13 years, uh, dating back to the publication of your wonderful novel, Bruno Littlemore, uh, which I reviewed very positively in the New York Times, and that led to us being in touch. And the mm-hmm. you you that that book is is about a um, talking chimpanzee, and right. you later wrote a piece for Harper's about some of the um, great ape language projects. And mm-hmm. as I understood it at the time, some of your interest in that and in ethology and animal behavior was related to an interest in evolutionary biology um, and mm-hmm. in questioning what I would call a, a religious view of human exceptionalism. And as mm-hmm. you say in this earlier version of the piece, at the time you would have considered yourself a quite militant you know, sort of Dawkins-Dennett kind of atheist. Is that fair to say? Well, um, le- less so Dawkins and more. Um, I-, I was a bigger fan of Christopher Hitchens than uh, Richard Dawkins. Um, but, you know, I-, I was thinking about this the other day, that my kind of uh, militant atheism back then was, um, I-, 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 I think that it was primarily informed less less so than by Dawkins. I actually have a lot of uh, nits to pick with Dawkins just as a biologist um, the, because uh, there are some critiques of him as a biologist, that, uh, particularly by biologists that I like better, like uh, Franz de Waal, um, that uh, you know poke a lot of holes in his thinking uh, about science, not about you know uh, r- religion. Uh, but, you know, my, uh, if you want to call it militant atheism, was more informed by, uh, let's see, Carl Sagan, uh, particularly his book, uh, uh, The Demon Haunted Earth, which uh, I read as a teenager and it was a big, uh, a big influence on me. Uh, I would say Carl Sagan, um, uh, William H. Gass, uh, Baruch Spinoza, <laughs> Uh, uh, Bertrand Russell uh, and George Carlin. Okay. <laughs> we could hi- hijack this podcast by uh, and turn it into a conversation about whether or not Spinoza is rightly considered an atheist, but I'm sure we would <laughs> right. we, we would lose all all our listeners. But you and I can maybe hash right. that out after the recording's done. But. You, you know, uh, Carl Sagan and George Carlin were probably the biggest influences on my atheism. Well, those are august, uh, august influences. So, <laughs> yeah. so I should say that where this isn't going is that by the time you were sitting down to write this piece, informed by the all of the uncanny events um, uh, recounted here, uh, you you have come to some great conversion. Um, but you you do arrive at a place of, at the very least, a sense of the strong limits of human understanding of the goings-on in the world. Is that fair to say? And also, per, and, a, and a sympathy with people like the woman we call Lucy here, who mm-hmm. believe the things that they need to believe in order to uh, continue to live their lives in the face of great hardship. Yeah, I mean, you know, my the uh, uh, I, I, there was a line in the original draft of this article that wound up being cut for uh, space, 
uh, which, I mean, there was a lot because there was, you know, this is a, a, such a, a big story with so many different angles. But, you know, but basically um, uh, I was uh, uh, a very hard-hearted atheist back about um, 10, 11, 12 years ago when I published that novel, uh, when I was in my late 20s. And, uh, and I've just, you know, uh, I, I'm... I, I I wouldn't say I'm not religious still, but uh, my attitudes toward religion have just uh, softened and chilled out a lot in the course of the past uh, uh, ten or fifteen years, and I have much more sympathy now for it than I used to. I guess the 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 other question then becomes what you make of some of the the what you could call coincidences and probably would call coincidences, but seem like such significant coincidences between these two stories. Yeah. Of that, you know, I, I think uh, Haley, my cousin, uh, said something along the lines of, uh, you know, there are certain things that I uh, don't understand that I will never understand, uh, and I'm okay with that. And I think that's a very um, wise and mature way of thinking about it. And that's pretty much my um, my stance, too. Um, I'm certainly not going... Like, actually, there was some a friend of mine who had read the article, came up to me the other day, and uh, and said, so what do you think about <laughs> you know, the, uh, the ghost story in the middle of it? And I said, uh, quite honestly, I, I don't know. I don't think anything at all. I have... Uh, absolutely no idea. Um, I, uh, it, I, I don't, I, I just, um, I, I don't know, you know, that's, uh, that is beyond what I am comfortable in speculating. I would certainly never say, oh yes, this is a, you know, this is a, a, a ghost story. I could not do that. But the, uh, sort of uh, the possibility of belief and the the mystery is i think kind of a, an interesting uh, uh impenetrable black hole at the center of the story that i think really is more interesting if we don't know and don't speculate sure. you know if if i can um switch gears slightly although this is related another um subject of the piece is of course place um yeah. And, you know, you, you mentioned the fact that these two locals are the ones that um, who found your cousin and they went out on their own. Not only did they go out on their own outside of the auspices of this larger search, but they went and looked in an area that the um, various search and rescue kind of um, topographical computer programs had said there was no point looking. And, right. you know, that that ties into some of these other questions about reason and intuition and things like that. But it also just speaks to the particularities of a place and what it means to know a place really deeply. And right. you did not grow up in Arkansas. You grew up in Colorado, but your parents both grew mm -hmm. up in Arkansas, met in college right. there and you speak at length about your deep family connections there and the time you spent there growing up and maybe you mm -hmm. can speak a little bit more about arkansas as the setting for this these events uh yeah both of my parents are from arkansas um and uh, when i was growing up um we would spend every 
uh, Christmas, just about every Christmas and often go out there in the summers also in Arkansas. Uh, and in particular, um, you know, Arkansas for me as a kid is uh, my aunt and uncle's uh, uh, property that they used to have in Pea Ridge. Um, and my, that aunt and uncle are the uh, are Haley's grandparents who are, you know, took her on that hike. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, my, my uncle in particular, uh, Jay is, uh, just, you know, uh, uh, a beloved figure in the family He's a, a really incredible guy who invented the paintball gun among other things. And, uh, he was an engineer who could just build anything. Uh, and their property was this, uh, you know, uh, quiet, hilly wooded place, uh, way out in the boonies. Um, and, uh, and it was a really just, uh, wonderful place to go to, uh, a couple of times a year when I was a kid. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and I, I really, uh, loved the place. And also my parents always felt a little bit like, a, you know, fish out of water out in, uh, in Colorado. They were the only, uh, people in my family who ever left Arkansas. Um, and, uh, and the and the thing about the uh, um, the couple of guys, the two hunters who uh, who found her, uh, you know, there's a, an interesting uh, backstory to this story, which is that they were uh, the the place where uh, Jay and Joyce and Haley were hiking that day uh, was on top of uh, a mountain called Cave Mountain, which is in this area called the Buffalo uh, National River Wilderness. Um, which is uh, was created in 1972 because back in the 60s, uh, the uh, Army Corps of Engineers had planned to build a dam in order to create a reservoir in basically in the area where Haley was eventually found in order to fi- uh, uh, fuel a hydroelectric plant. And, uh, and the, there was a local kind of uh, environmental uh, resistance to this idea. And there was a big legal fight over it that happened for about 10 years. And at the end of it, the uh, resolution of the fight was that uh, a local uh, conservationist group uh, was able to get uh, Congress to designate the area as a national wilderness area. Uh, it's protected by the National Park Service. It's protected land, uh, which essentially effectively meant that all of the people who lived in the Buffalo River Valley who uh, initially were going to have to leave because the government was going to build a lake on top of their houses had to move anyway because it was now government land and uh, and all the the local residents were kind of like uh, gee we really wished you'd gone for the third option of just leaving us alone (laughs) (laughs) and uh and there is a lot of uh, local uh, mistrust and resentment of the government, particularly in that area, because of the uh, imminent domain uh, battles that happened with a bunch of people uh, where, you know, they were essentially forced into selling their land to the government in order to create this national wilderness area. Uh, and, uh, uh, and and the two guys that found her... Uh, uh, William uh, Jeff Valines and uh, Lytle James. The uh, the interesting story uh, with those couple of guys has to do with the fact that so Haley got lost on the tr- on a trail at the very top of a mountain, and uh, the trail where she got lost pretty much hugs this cliff that's about two hundred feet 
of almost sheer vertical drop-off in every direction on all sides of this trail. And the uh, the official search and rescue people, the, the cops, basically, the emergency workers, um, did not think that she ever would have tried getting down that uh, drop-off or could have gotten off of it anyway but falling off of it. And so they looked along the bottom of the bluff and they looked on the top of the mountain, but they uh, concentrated their uh, efforts entirely either on top of the mountain or at the very bottom of the bluff. Uh, And uh, the reason they didn't find her for three days is because on the first day, uh, Haley, who was a six-year-old girl at the time, climbed down the bluff. She climbed down the cliff and was in the bottom of the valley by the riverside for the next three days, and no one else was looking there. Uh, and uh, when eventually, when uh, uh, Valance and James found her, uh, they later told a, a Dateline uh, reporter, Dateline made an, an episode about it a few months after the fact, that, uh, that their thinking was that uh, that if any, they were, they were hunters, and they were uh, expert at tracking and hunting game and that was what they were thinking uh which turned out to be correct they said uh, if any animal is hurt or lost or in distress or something like that the th- what they always do is go to the wa- water go down to the river and so they figured that looking along the banks of the river uh was the, the best bet they were the only ones doing that and uh and they were the ones who found her it's also kind of funny that uh, back uh, on top of the mountain in Tim's cabin, uh, Tim Ernst is the photographer who lived up there, uh, that on the first night, uh, uh, Haley's mother, Kelly, who was in complete distress and panic, uh, called a psychic uh, from Tim's house. And uh, the psychic told her that she was safe and lying down next to uh, a stream or a body of water which turned out to be exactly the, uh, the way that uh, James and Lydell, uh, J- uh, that James and uh, Valines were thinking. Um, and perhaps it was just intuition to say, yeah, if you're lost, go to the water. Um, and just to, to, to connect it up, if, am I right in remembering that in Haley's account of it, it was this imaginary friend who guided her down to the water. She didn't know her way down the down the bluff that's that yeah yeah that's what she said she said that uh alicia guided her to the water and uh, also i think uh, she says something uh the the exact quote is something uh that goes and i i don't know if it was her guiding me that got me there or if i was just blindly pushing through the woods but uh you know i but alicia did guide me to the water i didn't know it was there so um can you tell us in broad terms, while obviously respecting uh, her privacy, a bit about um, what Haley is up to now? She she became a, um, a a kind of celebrity, as happens in these cases. Um, and my sense is that this is a story that people return to, and particularly in the in the age of true crime podcast fascination Mm -hmm. you know the both her own disappearance and the relationship of this disappearance with this earlier cult killing has you know gets Mm -hmm. uh renewed attention 
uh, every now and again. Um, and I'd just be uh, interested to hear um, what she's up to these days and how she relates to this bit of her personal history. Yeah, uh, you know, she's, uh, uh, Haley was, um, she was actually living in New York for a little while. Uh, she was, uh, uh, it was and an, is an actor, and she was, uh, uh, for a while, doing the whole thing of, uh, you know, uh, uh, waiting tables while doing uh, auditions for plays and, you know, hustling, trying to make it as an actor. And then the pandemic happened, and uh you know the the uh, the world kind of cratered for a lot of people including people who were trying to uh make it in new york as stage actors and she moved back to fayetteville um and uh and she is now uh working at uh the walton arts center um and uh and still acting in plays down there um and uh you know i mean she's she's 27 now and uh, like a lot of people, uh, like I think a lot of people who are about her age, like people in their uh, mid twenties now, kind of had uh, this uh, this giant hole gouged out of their uh, professional lives because of the pandemic, and are kind of trying to uh, piece things back together. And uh, that's where she's at right now. Um, I think she's trying to <laughs> scrape together enough money to move back to New York. Okay. Um, and, uh, then the, the last question I wanted to ask you, if it's not too horrifying a question for, for a writer, um, is, is what you're up to, um, what you're working on. Um, I heard, you know, I've heard some whisperings that it, it may be related to this piece, but I also know that, um, you've been writing a lot of fiction since the appearance of your novel and your story collection. Yeah, um, the uh, it's it's not too horrifying, <laughs> um, but the, the what I'm working on right now is uh, I am uh, uh, working on a book that is a uh, an expansion of this uh, uh, article. There was uh, well, as you know, because you edited it, edited it. Uh, the original draft of this was um, uh, about five thousand words longer than even the. Uh, a very long version of it, about fifteen thousand words that you that Harper's gener very generously uh, uh, let me publish in the uh, the August issue. Uh, but uh, I mean, this story. Uh, I actually there. I've been doing some uh, research about this after uh, you know this uh, the, this issue closed. I went out uh, this summer to Louisiana and Arkansas to uh, talk to some people involved with this and did a lot more research and um, you know and, and and this story it's a really big story. Uh, I'm working on a book uh, about this and uh, this there are many different you know just about every, pocket of the story you open it up there's a whole new bizarre chapter that uh, wasn't included in the article at all um so that's that's what i'm working on i'm working on a book about this um and uh the you know and i've also got a, a, a couple of big fiction projects kind of uh in uh, in development not concentrating on those for the moment but uh, but yeah i'm uh uh what i'm working on 
is uh, the uh, the longer version of the story. Okay. Well, I can say, um, as is probably suggested by the fact that I was asking you questions in this very podcast about pieces of this that um, did not make it into the final version, um, that there is, as long as this is, uh, the published version is so much more compelling material. And, um, you know, it, it, it is w one of those pieces where I wish we could have run it at 20,000 words, 25,000 words. Um, but uh, I'm very glad we got to run it at the length that we did. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to reading that book. Thank you. Yeah, well, I, I very much appreciate that. Uh, I mean, it really uh, uh, it was fantastic of you to uh, publish this you know, very long version of the, of the story. There's, there's more still, there are other things like, like, for example, uh, one of the, the, of the people who was convicted of the murder, uh, you know, an interesting, uh, side story there is that, uh, my aunt, uh, Joyce just happens to be friends with a woman who, uh, did some, uh, th uh group therapy with prisoners in Arkansas in the eighties. And that guy, totally fell in love with her and wrote her all of these long, crazy, rambling love letters. Um, and the letters are just fascinating. Um, and that's a really interesting and strange quirk of the story that was just, there was simply no room for it in the, in the piece. It had to hit the, uh, the cutting room floor. Uh, but there's, there's a lot wow. of stuff like that. And also after, after when, when I was doing research, uh, earlier this summer in Louisiana and Arkansas, I wound up, uh, connecting with the guy who was the prosecutor in, uh, in Lucy's trial, uh, who's, uh, pretty old, but he's still totally, uh, uh cognizant. And, uh, and that guy provided a really fascinating interview. I really wish I'd talked to him before I wrote the, the Harper's piece. Um, but, uh, but there's, there's a lot more to the story. It gets every, every, uh, thread that you pull on, it just, uh, spins out into another bizarre story. It's a, it's really, it's a hell of a That's story. Wonderful. Well, um, we all have that to look forward to. And in the meantime, I encourage listeners, um, who have been struck by what they've heard to read Ben's uh, wonderful piece in the August issue of Harper's Magazine. Benjamin Hale, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And, uh, and thanks for publishing this piece. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org slash save.